So 7.32 is where we're at this morning. If you've just joined us, welcome into it. Good to have you in our company. I think at this point, I need to stress that if you do have children as well as sensitive um, individuals listening in, please be aware that we are dealing with a very sensitive topic over the next hour or so. Our topic this morning is mental health, mental illness and suicide overcoming the stigma. Now, last week, many of us came across a distressing and heartbreaking story of a 32-year-old Muslim woman from Cape Town who sadly took her life. Um, her father, Dr. Arshad Steris, wrote a moving and heart-wrenching letter to his daughter, which he penned on the day of her janazah, and I'm sure many of you would have seen this letter as well, relating to her battle with mental illness and a beautiful tribute to her overall personality, which was absolutely stunning. Now, since the letter went viral, there's been an outpour of support for the family with people sharing similar struggles. But of course, there's also been hurtful criticism. Over the past week, we received a few messages from people asking us to please tackle this issue on air because it's something that's not really spoken about, like G and I have alluded to a little earlier on. The topic of suicide and mental illness remains a taboo in the Muslim community, despite the prevalence of issues like depression, anxiety, as well as bipolar disorder. So to our listeners, over the next hour, we are going to be unpacking this issue further. We've invited Dr. Arshad Steris to share his story and his daughter's struggles. We've also got medical perspective with psychiatrist Dr. Imtiaz Hussain from Rondebosch Medical Center joining us. And a little later, we are going to be speaking to psychologist Mr. Clint Maggot and occupational therapist Fadia Khameldin. Now, for those who are going to ask, um, we will have an Islamic perspective on suicide in a special series hosted by Shahida Kali starting this Wednesday at 7 p.m. And next week, she's going to be discussing and tackling the Sharia perspective. So this morning's discussion is merely an introduction to the topic of mental health and suicide, as well as what to look out for with regards to mental illnesses. But joining us online this morning, medical doctor and parents of someone who has been through mental illness and who had taken her life as well, and that is Dr. Arshad Steris. Dr. Salaamu Alaikum, good morning. What? Thank you so much what? for joining us on air. Wa Alaikum Salaam. Yes. So, of course, yes. firstly, I think we'd like you know, extend our condolences, but also you know, let you know that we really appreciate you taking the stand, coming on the air, which I know has taken a lot um, at such a short time or during a short, such a short space of time to deal with mental illness and, and the stigma that's associated with mel- mental illness, but also suicide. Um, and especially in our community, Doc, we understand it's not something that's often spoken about, many a time swept under the carpet. So, you know, perhaps let's start by understanding it's been a week since um, your daughter's passing. Can you perhaps put into words, you know, what the family has been going through this past week, and how does someone comprehend something like this? I can only say it's been a very, 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 very tough time for all of us in the family. Every single cousin, nephew, niece, whoever, especially myself 
and her mom, she was like, you know, she was a very special person. We had um, the seven-night celebration the other day, and we allowed uh, colleagues to come, uh, colleagues from work to come into what was a very special family-only occasion via Zoom. And everybody just spoke in glowing terms about her. She was, you know, even when she was going through her own tough times, she had time to to offer solace to others. There is a, a colleague of hers, uh, she worked in the parliament in some legal department. I never knew the exact details. But this girl was close to her. Her name is Tasneem as well. Her dad passed recently. And then one day, she just out of the blue phoned Tasneem and said to Tasneem, Tasneem, I just read Surah Yasin for your dad. And I'm going to make Zuhar now. And I'll make a dua for him after that. So that's the person that she was, a very, very special person, kind-hearted. Many years ago, she worked at the Human Rights Commission. It wasn't her duty to go and feed the refugees out there at Ocean View. She did that. Mm -hmm. She collected clothing. She took it to them. So when she passed, you know, like... It's like a big chunk of our lives were taken out of us. Of us. Um, look, we do realize it's going to take a long, long time to get over it. If we ever get over it, um, you can't just, uh, you know, take somebody like that out of your life and say, okay, you're going to get over it. In time, we'll just remember the, the pleasant memories and hopefully we'll forget the the sad memories. She, look, basically the reason why I decided to do this is on the day when we found her, myself and my wife and her husband, uh, he had come from the beach with the, with the child. She was supposed to go with and decided not to. And, uh, you know, we were hysterical when we found her. I tried to resuscitate her for every breath that I that I blew into her. I was making dua to Allah to please give my my child back to me, but it wasn't to be. And uh, then immediately after that, as the paramedics were packing up, I said, "Oh my God! Now the the gossipers, their tongues are gonna be extra lubricated now." And the very next morning, I had one senior person in my community coming here to pay respects. And he made a car for her. And as he was leaving, he mentioned the very thing that I was that I was worried about. That, that people are going to say she's going to go straight to Jahannam. And I said to myself, how can that be? How can mm. such a sweet, caring person be going straight to Jahannam? Who knows what went into her mind? Mm. I went the other day to the sheikh, and the sheikh says, everybody's saying, look, these people are ill-informed, don't listen to them, but they do talk, and it affects you. Of course. And I, he said to me, his daughter recently had a child, he says, she said to him, Abi, you know, what torment did that person not go through when 
they did that act what that they did. All she had to do was to look on the cell phone and see the picture of a of a baby, you know. So it real it is really really heart wrenching and 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 it uh, it affects you. I mean, I'm still not sleeping well. Although what that letter that I wrote. I wrote it the day when we received the mail from the from the from the um, uh, pathologist, and I went downstairs. It was sealed in a bag, and I slid the bag open, and I I just kissed her on the forehead, and that was like, oh, it was so emotional for me because it reminded me days in in, day, in years gone past until she was about thirty when she comes in from work. I can see her walking down the road here. I opened the door for her, and then I would plant a kiss on her forehead. She was really, you know, we shouldn't say that you have a favorite child, but she was my favorite child, and she was special. And I didn't want people to slander her memory, and that is why I did that letter. And the other thing, it was also a catharsis for me. She was like that. If she had, if she had pressing uh, issues that bothered her, she would go to a book, not necessarily a diary, write it in there. We're finding all these books at home here now and at the place where she lived. And, yeah, look like it's very sad. I've, I've been involved in families um, who had suicide before, but it didn't affect me like that. It was a patient. Mm. This is my own flesh and blood. Of course. And of course. basically, I, try, I was looking for answers. People said, no, you mustn't question. You must Allah. Uh, it happened. We don't know. Allah knows best. Yeah, Allah does know best. But uh, as a medical person, I wanted to know the answers. Of Why course. could I not see the sadness in her eyes when I'm spending three days, I mean three hours a day, every day with her? We used to go fetch a child at the crash, keeping her for a couple of hours until she finished her work. She worked, um, what do you call this, online. At home for eight hours, all alone by herself, and I think all that, uh, also that um, separation from the personal touch with the colleagues at work and things, that might also have be a, been a contributing factor. But I think the biggest contributing factor was the stigma of a single few words mm. that someone uttered a few years ago when she was also in the clinic for a much more, much lesser uh, episode of anxiety and probably also depression. And that person said, She wasn't in the Malays. She was in a clinic. You know, uh, and then on this occasion, I asked her husband, didn't she talk? Didn't she say anything? Husband said to me, this was the very day when she was still lying there waiting for the mortuary van to come and fetch her. He said, yes, Papa. We were at the doctor." In uh, late this um, um, early December, late November, because she had done what is a screen for help, she had inflicted what we call self 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 wounds. She has cut her arm. It self wasn't a suicide attempt. That's yeah. not a suicide attempt. That is a call for help. They cut the arms. It's a common thing that people mm. in distress do. And he took her to the doctor, and rightly so. The doctor immediately consulted with the psychiatrist who wanted to admit her. And because of the previous stigmatist comment, she declined. And she got him to swear that he will not tell me, and he didn't. Mm. Regretfully so.
because I would have intervened and asked her to go. You know, so that's where... So I decided that I must put that thing out and we must do be more empathic to people with mental illness. Yeah. Um, you can't say to somebody like another patient told me, her husband said, sometimes you get stigmatized by your very own family, mm. those very nearest to you. This girl told me her husband said to her, it hurt her very much when her husband asked her, you know, her husband, the one who's supposed to be most supportive of her. So the stigma is a big problem, and these people need love and understanding and support. Many people, the reason for, for the depression might be different in each individual, but ultimately it is the cry out to be understood to be loved, and then to be helped by those nearest and dearest to them, first of all, and the community out large, at, uh, at, large, at large. Now, Dr. Steris, um, you know, we, I wanted to get into, you know, a little bit more in terms of, of, of the life of Tasneem. Um, you know, when you've pinned this, this heart-wrenching letter, I want to get into that as well. You know, um, and then obviously with the, with the stigma that has been created, we, I want to, to delve into that also a little bit later um, during the course of the program. You know, this is something no parent would want to publicly address. And clearly it was those comments that led you to pin this letter and to come out today and speak to us publicly on air, um, you know, around that. But I want to, and, and you've mentioned you know, a few points as well, you know, in terms of when it is you first established that your daughter had, um, you know, suffered from depression and, you know, the help that she had seeked at that point in time. But let's get into this discussion a little bit, um, you know, just in two minutes time or so. I want to go for some commercial news. And when we come back, we continue. This is Breakfast on 91.3 FM with Gulam and Sabra. Don't go away. A strip of land with over 2 million people blockaded for 13 years. Healthcare is on its knees, food is scarce, and water is inadequate. COVID has wreaked havoc in the lives of the people of Gaza. 53% of the population live below the poverty line. 80% of Gaza relies on external aid to survive. And 20,000 children are now orphans. The future is bleak. Please, don't forget Gaza. Donate now to Islamic Relief. VOC Breakfast, weekdays 6.30 to 9 a.m. Only on the Voice of the Cape. Welcome back to Breakfast on 91.3 FM. We are in discussion with uh, uh, Dr. Arshad and, of course, um, speaking to us about, you know, the, the men, mental health and suicide and overcoming the stigma after um, his daughter was uh, also fell victim to, um, you know, the act of depression. And then uh, thereafter, some people are actually coming through on our WhatsApp line on 0829913913 asking so many questions. And we're going to get into some of them a little bit later, inshallah, if time allows. Dr. Arshad, Islam. And shukran so much for holding um, on the line for us. And we spoke about, you know, your daughter, the life she had, etc. And how things, the, the, the turn of events, um, you know, how the family has been affected by this as well. The one thing that I also wanted to get into, Doc, you know, very often, and you've mentioned this earlier, you know, with the comments that certain people make. And one of that is that people with mental illness are told that they need to pray more or, or, or that they've got a lack of iman for argument's sake. How would you respond to these perceptions? As I said, my, my child was a child of Dean. She wasn't. She read the Quran on a daily basis. She made us allow on time. How can, how can you say that, uh, you know, when somebody has diabetes, you don't say to that person, oh, you have diabetes. But that is an illness that was 
an affliction that was put on that person by Allah. And so his mental illness as well. It's an affliction that's put onto that person by Allah. Um, so the, for, for people to come say that a person with mental illness has less demand than another person, that is a complete fallacy. I had in my community a guy who is a um, schizophrenic. Um, he was halfway through completing his hip studies when he became schizophrenic. So there was, a, there was another suicide in my area about three or four years ago. A young man, 21, who the neighbors called me to come and see. Uh, unfortunately for him, it was, it was too late. Uh, he had strung himself up in the rafters in the garage. The other day, on the day of my, my daughter's janazah, one of the other regular, regular musallis to the mosque, he said to me, can you remember that boy? I said, yes, I was there. He said, you know, that boy, there wasn't a walk that he wasn't in the masjid. So now how can you say that, that, that people who have a mental illness have less iman that, than anybody else? That, that is total, a total fallacy. Now, Doc, I also want to know, you know, in terms of dealing with someone and, for instance, your daughter as well, you know, when she went through these bouts of depression, um, you know, when things were getting a bit much for her, in terms of the support that was around her, I mean, you've mentioned her husband, yourself and your wife, you know, as her parents, what sort of support was there for her? Look, like I said, this, she had what we call masked depression, okay? This I found out afterwards from her husband. I knew from the previous occasion when she was in the hospital about five years ago. That was five years, five, almost six years ago, eight, eight, eight months before she got married. And as far as my understanding goes, look, children are private. They don't talk to their parents. You can't ask them, did you take your tablets today? Do you still need to take your tablets? They don't want you to interfere in their lives. So she was discharged about five and a half years ago from the clinic, obviously with follow-up appointment and uh, prescriptions for medication. But somewhere in the long, along the line, she probably recovered. This was a relapse, and you can have depression can be like that. It can be chronic. So in other words, you have it all the time. It can be relapsing like that. In other words, you recover from one episode and then you, you go into another episode at another time. So what happened to her here is that she went into another episode of depression for whatever reason it was. I don't know the reason. Like I told you, I was with her every single day for three hours a day since the 1st of December, and there was no indication in her eyes that she was going through this inner turmoil. I couldn't see it. I found out after the fact, when she was already passed, I was looking for the answers because I don't know. Uh, there was, how could it happen right under my nose? And that's when her husband told me that she, they had been to the, the doctor uh, several weeks before, and... Um, Look, like I said, if they, if we, we give them all the support all the time. We, it's just that you can't 
So step really into their life and say, listen, yeah, open your mouth, here's your tablet. You support them and you protect them from negative comments. And you say, look here, Ahmed, don't worry about that. Try to be positive. Don't harp on every little comment that anybody makes. So you, you want to put them in a, in, a, in, in, a, in a protective cocoon, away from these harmful comments, and you want them to think of life positively. I often spoke to her, like I said in my post there. I told her that, look, she was an idealist, you know, a perfectionist. She wanted the ideal utopian life. Mm. Everything, she should be happy, 100%. I said, there's no such thing as, as, as 100% happiness. Life is up and down and up and down like that. Yeah. So that's what you try to inculcate in them, that don't be, don't set the benchmark so very high that when you don't achieve it, you become depressed. Mm. Doc, if but I can... that was just her personality. Yeah. Doc, if I, if, if I may, just coming very quickly, you were talking about the support and, and I think that is something that is very, very important, you know, for somebody that, uh, you know, if, if you're suffering from depression is to have that constant, you know, support support base and in this case she had you you know she had a, her husband and a mom and the rest of the sisters you know, she, and a brother she's yeah. got a very loving brother as well so she had all of those you know all but, of those but she kept it to us on this occasion mm. she kept it within and what is what none is, of us knew on new new year's day the house that she rented there was a pool there we all spent a nice day there mm. that time she was she unknown to us she was already suffering but and 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 she this the facade of being happy. Yeah, and this could all be because of you know of the stigma of the stigma and of the comments that has come. Because if there was no stigma and she had that support even from her friends and the and the broader community and the aunties and uncles and everybody else, then she might have just might have you know reached out to you and wanting to go back uh, you know to a clinic. Most definitely, most definitely, no doubt about that. Not for all the things that she had positive. She had so many positives in her life at this stage. Mm. There's a son crying downstairs now. She she had a promotion that she fought for for two and a half years. Yes. Her husband started a new job, the job that he wanted. He, uh, she wanted him to. Everything was positive. They were going to start to go house hunting. Wow. So there were so many positives in her life, and that is what I couldn't understand. How could somebody... With so many positives in the light at this very moment, mm. go and do something like that. Doc, I tell you, you what, um, uh, g- give me one second. I want to pick something as well, yeah. Just in terms of, you know, Tasneem's decision to, to take her life, I mean, how do you, as a father, um, you know, reconcile with Tasneem's decision? You know, what are you feeling in terms of the emotions that would go through a parent? You know, is it is it sadness? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? How are you it's, yourself it's, reconciling with I this? I would say it's all of that. It's, it's the, the whole bang lot of that anger at the people who stigmatize people with, mental illness, sadness, um, because we left here grieving over her, a child is here, uh, you know, insecurity for her, for her husband and a child, what's going to happen to them now in the future? It's, it's just all those emotions, denial, how could it happen to me? How could it happen to my daughter? I mean, it could happen to somebody else's son who hung himself, but 
Why did it happen to my daughter? Mm. You know? And you start so questioning. We go through the same emotions like any other human being. I'm a human being. I just happen to work as a doctor and know about these things. But I'm a human being just like everybody Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Dr. Steris, I'm going to ask you uh, just to hold on the line for me. We need to break away for some traffic and some news. And then we'll continue this discussion after the break as well. And uh, then we'll also bring on Dr. Imtia Susan, who is a psychiatrist, to also just share a comment with regards to this and also societal issues and stigmas that is attached to this mental disorder. It's gone a minute to 8 o'clock. Is VLC Breakfast with Gulam Fakir and Sabira Sheikh Asab only on the Voice of the Cape? Welcome back to Breakfast on 91.3 FM with Gulam and Sabra. And uh, we are in discussion with uh, uh, Dr. Arshad Steris. Um, we're speaking about mental health and suicide overcoming the stigma. We've got about five minutes left before we need to wrap up with um, uh, Dr. Steris. Dr. Steris, thank you so much for holding on, um, you know, while we just took a very short break there for, um, for a few minutes. Um, just as a point of departure before we hand over to uh, Dr. Hussein as well, who's going to be chatting to us, uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Steris. You know, as a parent, um, we've asked you how how do you basically reconcile with your daughter's decision to take her own life if you've commented on that. We want to also look at how her husband and her and her baby is coping at this point in time, you know, and then how it is that you choose to remember um, your daughter. Dr. Steris? Yeah, let me first start with the husband. He he isn't doing that well, although he also tries to show a positive, positive thing. Fortunately for us, um, my daughter's place of employment had good benefits. So they have extended counseling services to him, and he's made arrangements to do. Remember, I just I told you he just recently started a yes. new job. Yes. So time off is a problem. So, but he is going to go there uh, for the counseling. Uh, he also has a problem from before when he lost his mom due to breast cancer several years ago. Mm. So all of these things also are impacting on him. So he is going for counseling, fortunately for us. Um, he has decided that he's going to move back in with us and bring the boy with, uh, with him. Uh, look, the boy has been with us and they've lived with us for, for, the, for the entire married life. Okay. until they tried to move out six months ago against my wishes. You know, no no grand, grandparent wants to see such a lovely boy leaving him. Mm. But fortunately, it was just a block and a half away. Like I said, we were there with, at, with them every single day since they moved out six months ago. Now we started, the, I'll call it the repatriation process. It was painful. I told them part of our dealing with with our loss is to make sadaka of the worldly possessions that she has or had. So I told him, look here, we're not going to hold on to all these things. We don't have place for it. Give it in sadaka to people who need it. So we, de- we did some of those things. And they still think that we're going to do that the way we deal with it. Now, I told him another lady, a patient uh, that I don't even remember or know, she said, you know, the way you're going to get salvation for yourself and your daughter is to give sadaka. He also called afterwards back. The boy's only, he's not even three yet. She said, you must make him study gifts because the gifts 
every day that Hibs is alive, there's going to be tawab for his mom. That is something that we'll have to explore when he's bigger. Fortunately, he's very attached to us. Um, we have to break, uh, like I told you, his mom was a very doting mom mm. to the extent that it often led to arguments between us, myself and her, about spoiling him. So we have to, we have to break some of his uh, the habits, like especially when he needs to go to bed at night. She used to allow him to lie in front of the TV screen and watch little cartoons and stuff, and then eventually falls asleep mm. at about half past eight. My wife says, no, that's too late for a child, for a child of that age to go to sleep in the morning. He doesn't want to wake up to go to crazy, pulls the blankets over his head. So we're coming to terms with these things, uh, the finer nuances of him, but he loves us to birds. On the day of the Dana- on the day of the Janaza, when his dad was going to take his uh, other grandpa home, he said, "I said his dad reached over the car for him, and his dad he was on my arm." He said, "I said, do you want to go with daddy?" He said, "No, you want to go with Opie." He calls me Opie. He says, "I go with Opie. I go in Opie's bucky. I drive a bucky, a uh, colt bucky." Mm-hmm. So um, I was taking him to Kentucky to go buy some uh, these uh, little small pieces of chicken called pops because that's about as much that he eats. He doesn't eat other food, really. So the thing is, he's very attached to us, and fortunately for us, that is a, a very big plus. We're not a stranger to our son-in-law. He's lived here for four and a half years before they moved out. So we're trying to make them comfortable, and we're supporting him as far as we can, yeah. physically and mentally. Uh, if he goes and uses the... Um, the psychological services that's offered to him, that's up to him. Right. But we are very happy that they are both here and then we we can look out for them. Mm. And we're just praying that Allah give us a long enough umar to raise him uh, to be a good, grown, pious Muslim. And that's Amen. all we're praying for now. And uh, like I said, our, our, what you call it to my daughter, is to care for her loved ones that she left behind. Right. Dr. Sturis, we are going to have to leave it there. It's been... Okay. I just want to quickly say one last thing. I want to just say shukran for all those people who sent messages of support. I want to also alert you and the community out large that many of the messages were from people who suffered, like my daughter, who also are keeping their things quiet because of whatever reason, the stigma, I encourage them. I want to encourage anybody with mental health issues to go forward. Mm. Don't be scared. Go speak to somebody. Speak to an ear that is sympathetic to you, not to somebody that's going to be judgmental. Find somebody that you know that you can trust that's not going to turn around and turn your story completely around to a horrible thing. And then, like I said, people would be... Sometimes the family members or the significant others in their lives, they don't understand what to do. They also need support. I right. referred a patient who came to me walking down from Seven Street on the day after the janaza. I spent two and a half hours outside the house on the stoop speaking to that guy going through the same thing. There is a book out there written by some guy called Michael Lipton. If you, if you, if you hear this, the... the the title of the book, you will understand what these people with depression go through. 
The title of the book is My Journey to Hell and Back. Mm. And it says, the next thing says, My Long Battle with Depression. It's a guy called Michael Lipton. I think he wrote, he wrote it in, in 2000. Also a, a guy, a rich guy with money. Yeah. who went through depression. He didn't know how to handle it. His family didn't know how to handle it. He went through three psychologists, three psychiatrists, until he decided to look into himself and start helping himself. Right. Dr. Stevens, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to leave it there. Shukran, very much for your time. And, and I'm, just, I'm just hoping that people out there will, will realize what I'm trying to do. I'm trying um, to destigmatize mental illness. Yes. Be supportive, be empathic to people with mental illness. Muni say, I is a you know. I is not freedom to live in What will you You know, those kind of comments. Right. Okay, shukran very much, man. Shukran, Doc. Okay. And uh, all of the very best. And uh, once again, may Allah grant Jannah and ease to you as well, inshallah, as a family, on behalf of all of us here at Voice of the Cap. In- and the thousands listening to us right now, uh, messages coming through on 0829-913-913. There's just so many messages that's coming through right now. And we're going to see if we can get into some of those a little bit later, inshallah. We're talking this morning about mental uh, health and suicide, overcoming the stigma. You remember the story of uh, Tasneem. It was all over social media. Some people wanted to know where they can find the letter that was penned by her doc- uh, by her father, Dr. Arshad Steris. You can go and search for it online. You can also just check on VOC's um, social media pages going to find it there as well when we come back after the break inshallah we're going to talk to dr imtiaz Husin, who's a psychiatrist and just for him to share comment with regards to the sabira you know why is there the stigma around suicide not only in the muslim community but in community just generally you know so we want to get into that after the break inshallah don't go away it's gone eight uh, rather 15 minutes after the hour of eight o'clock 16 minutes after 8 a.m. is where we're at this morning. We're into the final hour of the show. And for those of you that have been listening in since just after 7.30, we are speaking about mental illness and suicide and the stigma that is attached and, of course, breaking that stigma. We did speak to Dr. Arshad Steris. And for those of you that have been following um, the conversation online, uh, his daughter, Tasneem, uh, who had suffered with mental illness as well as depression, ended her life last week week. Um, we want to salute Dr. Arshad Steris for coming on air to chat to us, to share a very personal experience in the hope of, you know, making a difference to other families that might be going through the same thing and in the hope that it doesn't end the way it ended or has ended for so many people who feel the only option they have is to end their lives. But of course, um, There's a lot for us to still unpack this morning. We are going to be speaking to, in the next few moments, psychiatrist Dr. Imtiaz Hussain to, of course, you know, explain to us in terms of, you know, what are those factors that we need to be looking out for? Why is there a stigma that's attached um, to mental illness in the Muslim community? How do we debunk and break these sort of stigmas as well? But Dr. Hussain, good morning. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to VOC Breakfast. Uh, shukran wa alaikum salam uh, to you and to all the listeners. And uh, perhaps if I could just start by uh, offering my condolences uh, to Dr. Stairs and to his family. And Allah send his uh, mercy upon Dr. Stairs and his family and grant him rahmah, inshallah. So, yeah, I think you, 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 there's a, a lot of um, 
issues that, that you've raised, and I think particularly around stigma, so maybe we can just perhaps start on that since you, you brought that up. As, uh, and Dr. Stelis also brought that up. I think um, it's a real challenge, stigma, unfortunately, in the community, in the broader community, uh, and in mental health in general, we find that uh, our patients are stigmatized, uh, those who work in mental health services are stigmatized, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a very broad problem, and it's not just a problem locally, it's even a problem internationally that we find. Um, and part of it is, is stems from a lack of understanding about uh, what mental illness is. Part of it, I think, is also historical in terms of how people have viewed mental illness. Um, and, you know, if we sort of go back in history, uh, whether you look at uh, sort of Western history or even other uh, history in terms of uh, how mental illness is viewed, is usually viewed in a particularly negative way. So, for example, people with mental illness are often viewed as being bewitched or, uh, you know, that evil spirits uh, or that they were sinful in some way. I mean, you have stories of, for example, in the Middle Ages, people being burnt at the stake. So, so you know, when, when you think about mental illness, it evokes all of these negative connotations, unlike, for example, somebody might be suffering from a physical illness. I think also in our um, Muslim community, I find it's a particular problem as well with stigma. And, and it's unfortunate for me to say that particularly amongst the older generation where there's a particular strong stigma, uh, anti-stigma against um, uh, mental health services uh, and they're often viewed uh, in, in a very draconian way that, you know, for example, when they think of a mental health institute, people have this perception that you're going to be locked up and chained down and forcibly given things and, and you're going to be treated almost like a criminal. Uh, as opposed to, you know, if you went to another hospital for some physical health problems and you could get proper care there. So, so these are perceptions that, unfortunately, are quite pervasive in the community. So when somebody, you know, has a mental health problem, firstly, they are aware very much of the stigma in the community and what people are saying about mental illness and how people with mental illnesses are perceived. So that already becomes a barrier to them accepting uh, or wanting to accept mental health services, even though they might realize that they need the help. But, you know, the fear of what other people are going to say, what the repercussions might be from their family members, uh, often that becomes uh, a huge barrier to them accessing care. So either they delay care or they don't even receive care at all. And I've come across a number of cases in my own practice where, you know, people have presented much, much later uh, because of, of uh, problems they've encountered in terms of stigma. So um, even I find that um, not just in terms of people's perceptions, but also when one looks at Sorry, can you, uh, sorry, even when uh, one looks at how services are structured, uh, you'll find that far less resources are allocated to mental health mm -hmm. services, you know, whether you look at it from a national level, for example, Department of Health, whether you look at how medical aids fund mental health services, whether you look at um, the number of people who are training mental health services. So, so even in terms of service provision um, and allocation of resources, there's a discrimination uh, towards mental health services. So... so it's very pervasive. Um, another aspect, as I said, is also lack of understanding. And I find it also interesting from, uh, when you think about it from an Islamic point of view, that in fact Muslims were amongst the first in the golden age to actually recognize mental illness and treat it like an illness, unlike how Muslims perceive it nowadays. Um, so I think we need to also go back and understand what the condition is. Doc, I want to uh, ask, you know, in terms of what are the telltale signs, what do we look out for? Why I'm asking is if we look at this Neem's case, for instance, her dad has spoken very passionately about, you know, a lot of positivity around her, you know, going places in life, a lot of a lot to look forward to in life as well. Um, 
you know, what are some of the contributing factors in terms of yeah. what should we be looking out for when it comes to friends and family um, that might be going through depression or suffering for depression and perhaps, you know, are not outwardly speaking about it or not wanting to let on to it? Yeah, so, so I think there's two things. Uh, the one is I want to touch on something Dr. Stella said and also what, what you've touched on, which is people have this perception that, well, because you've got everything, you have all the resources, you know, wh- why, why are you depressed or why are you sad? So I think the first problem in terms of understanding uh, what depression is, people equate depression to sadness. So, you know, why are you sad? So if, if you've been diagnosed with depression, the illness, uh, people will often say, well, I'm not sad, so why are you telling me I'm depressed? And I think uh, this is important for us to differentiate. Uh, when we talk about depression, we're not talking about somebody who's sad. I mean, you could be a bit off or sad uh, because of a small negative event. That doesn't mean you're actually unwell. So when we're talking about depression, we're talking about an illness that involves a number of symptoms. So, for example, someone who suffers from depression, the illness, you would see changes in their behavior. So they might become more withdrawn. They isolate themselves. They might become more irritable, more snappy. Um, you find that their the functioning becomes affected, so they become, for example, less productive at work. Uh, they might become more forgetful. Um, they sometimes even uh, think that they have memory problems because the forgetfulness can be so bad they find that they become quite distracted. And often other members of the family and perhaps colleagues and friends can notice a distinct change in their behavior. So they may not be able to pinpoint exactly what it is, but but there's a noticeable change in how they're interacting with others. So, so these are little clues. The other things are changes, for example, in their sleeping patterns, in their appetite. So the majority of people who suffer with depression often have reduced sleep, so they struggle to sleep, they struggle to fall asleep, or they have broken sleep, or they, you find that you know they're not eating as well and they're starting to lose weight over a period of time. They tend to be more lethargic. So they're not able to sort of do the normal activities, or if they do it, you find they're not able to do it in the same way. Sometimes they start neglecting, the, you know, in terms of how they dress, uh, so they're perhaps not as neat and they're not as particular as they normally are. Uh, they feel that everything is sort of too much trouble. And another key symptom is they sort of lose interest in things they would normally enjoy doing. So, for example, if they have hobbies, they have particular other interests, you find that they're kind of neglecting those. Uh, they stop socializing much with family members. They try and avoid social activities, even people who are generally quite sociable, when they become depressed, you find that trend, that change in behavior. And then sometimes they might even, you know, if they, if they feel pretty close to somebody, might actually talk about the fact that, you know, they, they feel like, you know, life is not worth living. They feel that, you know, there's not much point in carrying on. Uh, they can't really see the point of it all. Um, and sometimes it's a bit strange because you on the outside look at the situation, but why are you feeling that? A bit like how Dr. Seres mentioned that, you know, you've got everything going for you. You know, you've got the job that you want, you've got the husband that you want, you know, he's got the promotion, you've got all the resources. So, so from a life and a sort of materialistic point of view, you have everything going for you. Um, but this is also why it's important to understand the illness itself, because when somebody has depression, it also changes the internal thinking processes. They can't see that. They can't see the positives that you can see on the outside. Uh, they're only focusing on the negatives. So it's not really about how much resources they have or how much money they have or how easy life is for them. In their mind, it is not, that's not the case. It's, it's like somebody who's suffering from physical pain. So if you imagine somebody who's got physical pain, it doesn't really matter whether they're rich or poor. They're going to suffer with that pain, and that's going to be very distressing for them. So this is an, an equivalent, but it's an emotional pain. It's an intense, unpleasant emotional pain that they feel. 
and that's internal. And that doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you have resources or don't have resources. It is going to be intensely unpleasant. And that patients find very difficult to cope with, particularly when it goes on for a while. And that is the thing that often drives them. We have about a minute to go, and I oh, okay. want to that's ask, in terms the, of yeah, the challenges that you speak yeah, of, um, what sort of role does society and, and, and community play in the challenges yeah. that those with mental illness face? I think in the Muslim community as well, you know, it's none of anyone's business, but everyone feels entitled to share and give their opinion. Yeah. And there's a lot that goes around. I mean, Dr. Steris referred to as well, you know, at the time when his daughter had sought assistance from a clinic, people made references to Dimal Hayes. Um, yeah. If you're taking medication and you're on polls, there's a lot of poll shaming that happens within the family as well. Um, yeah. You know, does this contribute significantly to the outcomes thereof? Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, stigma, in short, stigma is a barrier to accessing help and accessing care. And that is one of the biggest problems with stigma. Uh, and there is also an internal sense of shame and feeling guilty because you have a mental illness, which again also becomes a barrier to accessing and getting help. So in short, when, when you ask what can society do, I think firstly, society has to accept mental illness and understand that, that this is a real illness. I mean, we wouldn't go around discriminating against people who have heart disease or hypertension or other physical illnesses. Uh, we think that's very strange, but that's exactly what we do for mental illnesses. You know? And you know, I've come across many uh, people who discriminate, whether it's in the Muslim community or outside. And I think there's also a role where many of our ulama can, can you know, play a very active role. I mean, very few places do I hear mosques giving khutbahs about mental illness. I mean, I find it very strange, for example, you know, we have a collective khutbah for cancer every year because of a cancer awareness week. But I've yet to come across a collective khutbah on mental health or depression, and yet every year we have a mental health awareness week. So even if you think about an organization like the MJC advocating for mental health, I don't see that happening. So even within our own structures and organizations, we see this bias in terms of how we address physical health problems and how we address mental health problems. So, you know, it has to filter both from the top and from the bottom. And one of the ways of tackling stigma is education, education and raising awareness and also tackling the misperceptions of what is mental illness and what is depression. Because the more you educate the public, the better the understanding, the more willing they are to accept help. And... Certainly in Western countries, you see far greater awareness of mental health, and that's because of public health campaigns in terms of educating the public around what mental health is. And we need similar things in our community uh, around mental health. So in short, that's really what we need to do and where we need to focus. And we need to have a lot more discussions like we're having today to raise this awareness and to educate the public. 30 seconds to go. In closing, I'd like to ask, you know, so when it comes to an individual that suffers with depression that is going to, through mental illness, um, you know, is the bottom line that, you know, they can't cope with it and that they do need the help and, you know, as a collective, that help needs to be, be had with regards to community support, parental and family support, as well as medical and or health support. Yes. So again, across the board, um, just because one has mental illness or has depression doesn't mean that one is not able to function or cope. So I think that's important. And depression is there's a wide range of, of responses. So you can have somebody with depression at the very mild end, where maybe they're able to help themselves with some self-help interventions. And then you can have the far the other end of the extreme, very severe depression, where really they need help. In fact, sometimes they might need help to the extent where we have to even force them to have help because they, they're not able to see that they need help. So that's, again, at the other extreme. And then you have everything in between. But, yes, 
people who are suffering with depression need some sort of intervention. That doesn't always mean medication. It can be a talking intervention. It can be support from a family member. It can be removing a stressor at work. So depending on what the nature of the problem is, we can target an intervention to try and help that individual. But the most important thing is when somebody is suffering from depression, for them to access help and to access support, you know, whether it's a family member, whether it's from the community, whether it's from a professional, you know, help is available. So we sure. as professionals are around, but there's also lots of other avenues of, of, of getting help. Well, Dr. Imtiaz Huzin, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning and, of course, sharing your um, expertise around the issue. That was psychiatrist Dr. Imtiaz Huzin speaking to us this morning on our topic of discussion, which is mental health, mental illness and suicide, as well as breaking the stigma thereof. But it's just gone 8.31. It's time for us to head out for our headlines at the bottom of the hour. Tahir Asali standing by with your headlines. So 8.33 is where we're at this morning. If you've just joined us um, a little late because we've been discussing a pretty interesting uh, topic this morning and one that's long overdue. We're speaking mental health a mental illness and mental health as well as suicide and you know breaking the stigma and we're continu- continuing with our conversation earlier on in the show we spoke to dr steris who gave us some sobering insights into his struggles as a parent with a child suffering from depression we also had or just heard from psychiatrist dr mts Hussein from Rondebosch medical center and we know you know that there are barriers that stem from stigma about mental illness within the Muslim community itself, as well as from the healthcare system. Now, Muslims with mental illness may interpret mental health symptoms as a curse or a punishment from God and may regard seeking psychiatric services as showing spiritual weakness. But joining us online this morning to tell us a bit more is occupational therapist Fadia Khamildin. Fadia, assalamu alaikum, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Wa alaikum salam wa barakatuh, and thank you for having me. It's only a pleasure, Fadia. Now, let's start off by understanding the role that an OT or an occupational therapist would play when it comes to issues of mental illness, um, as well as, you know, depression, and then, you know, discussing, you know, issues around suicide as well. Where does an OT fit in? So, occupational therapists are people who um, help professionals, who help people reconnect with occupations that have meaning and purpose to them. So, we're really working with people across the life stages when they are disconnected from the things they need to or um, need to or want to do or are expected to do. And as occupational therapists uh, working with people who have mental illness, we work alongside them as um, we consider people living with mental illness as experts by experience, and so we work alongside with them. Now I think they might identify the things that they want to do. So um, like all the speakers have um, spoken before and as well as how um, Dr. Sedis has indicated, it's not the person alone, it's also the unit and the collective and the community. And one of the biggest things that our people asking help and people support they need is, um, is stigma. And so it's really pertinent that we speak to this now and at this time because while um, mental illness has been stigmatized in the past, um, its prevalence is increasing, and a consequence of the pandemic that you are in at the moment is also um, mental health-related problems, depression, anxiety, burnout, stress, um, poor work-life balance. So occupational therapists are really interested also in looking at the person and thinking about, are you fulfilling all of the roles the way you want to, and are you putting um, enough self-care into yourself um, and into others? So that's really um, some of the things that OGs do. 
Now, Fadia, just to understand, I mean, you're also a qualified psychologist as well. I mean, how do you respond to the view that you've just spoken about, you know, the stigma that's associated with mental illness? But how do you respond to, you know, the view that Muslims with mental illness, you know, that they're suffering rather from spiritual weakness? And that's that's a common, you know, notion that we see within the Muslim community. And I think it's also the reason many a time why so many Muslims are afraid to speak out or don't want to speak out because they know that backlash or the answer that they're going to get, be given is, you know, go back to finding God or go, go and sit in your musalla or pray some more. Um, and that would, you know, give you direction and help you or assist you with regards to the depression that you probably are feeling. Mm. Thanks for just rectifying. I'm just I'm an occupational therapist. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't have um, a dual qualification. And our other guest who's on is a psychologist. Um, but basically, because we, we when something happens to us in our lives, we try to find an understanding of why of why this is happening. And so, what often happens is this: is that people try to make sense of what happens in, in their lives from an emotional or spiritual or social perspective. And so we have a lot of um, the stigma comes in because people are misinformed around what actually happens um, with people who have a mental illness. And so the psychiatrist explained and Dr. Sedis also explained, if you have hypertension or any other physical illness, then people um, don't expect you to talk about it and they, they, they accept that you're taking medication for it. But when, when people have a mental illness, we've got the stigma. So the problem with mental illness also is that people, um, stigma makes it difficult for people to talk about the mental illness, and it also affects their ability to seek help. So one of the biggest things and one of the opportunities that this, um, the strategy that they have faced the Cedis family um, and that Dr. Cedis is so generously speak to us about is also that we need to actually use the, this space and within the Muslim community to up our own mental health literacy. And so that means as a community, we need to understand what mental illness is about, and we need to understand um, how to help people recognize mental illness, how to guide them to seek help, how to become aware of the different kinds of help that is available. And we do have resources that, that people are, um, um, can connect to, and also to, um, to help people develop self-help strategies, and also how to support each other. So... In all of that, there's opportunities for us to promote mental well-being and also prevent mental illness. Right. Because it's, yes. No, Father, I actually just wanted to also come in there. I had one or two questions for you, but I want okay. to go for I want to go for a break. But before we do that, um, we've got Clint also online, who okay. is um, okay. who is a psychologist and he's going to be joining the discussion as well. Clint, alaikum. Um, Clint, we're going to go for a break quickly, but um, you know, something just, uh, I'm sure you, you know, many people ask you in terms of how it is that one define a depression, what, the, what are the signs that one look at, you know, um, when it gets to depression. So we're going to get into that after the break as time now moves on to 20 minutes to the hour of 9 o'clock. Um, so just to echo on what Dr. Hussain was mentioning earlier, there's usually an emotional and a behavioral and then a cognitive part. So you're going to notice people are typically going to start to feel very hopeless, um, a sense of despair about them. And this is, um, as you said, beyond sadness. So this becomes quite profound and becomes quite persistent, something that really can't shake. And we'll notice also that people stop enjoying things and they stop kind of having an interest in things. So there's a sense that they will go through the motions. They might be able to still continue to go to work and do the things they need to do during the day. But it's as if they kind of switched off to it. Mm. Um, behaviorally, usually there's a slowing down. They, they almost struggle to initiate or to do things. There's a lack of energy. Um, and then also cognitively, 
they're going to struggle to see any kind of hope or point to things. You know, often when I chat to people that are depressed, the question around, like, what's the point or, you know, why should I be doing this really comes up. And there's mm-hmm. really a sense that in terms of their future and themselves, um, it's very, very negative. And this kind of leads to a, a stuckness that we see. Um, and often there's a feeling that things are too much and there's a desire to kind of give up in some way. Now, Fadia, perhaps we can come to you, you know, in terms of understanding, you know, shit sectors dealing with mental illness, um, depression, as well as suicide. You know, should they be working with the community and faith leaders to help reduce the stigma and perhaps increase understanding and develop services that are more accessible to Muslims? I know earlier on, um, psychiatrist Dr. Imtiaz Hussain mentioned education around mental illness is so important, especially amongst our community and the Muslim community as well. Yeah. Yes, I think for me, um, a silent approach is not necessarily the best one. I think the problem in our Muslim community is that we don't speak about it or we expect people in the house to manage it. So, you're like, right, it's this is something that's a personal problem. But mental illness affects human beings. And so it doesn't discriminate against race, gender, or religion. And so because we need a more humane approach to this and we need really to have the conversations in all of our community spaces, and our community spaces are integrated. So I think one of the, um, the opportunities that arise is for us to, um, to start thinking about, like I said, educating ourselves, because people who have a mental illness, when they speak about it, they say that they have to recover, not only from the illness, but the consequences of the illness as well. So the consequences of the illness are the stigma and the discrimination. It is the social exclusion. It is the effects of admission. Um, like I said, when you get, go into a psychiatric facility, there's a stigma attached to it. The family don't want to talk about it. Um, you have a lack of choice. You have um, lots of ideals and broken dreams. So these are all the things that people they need to um, overcome. So it's not just the illness. It's complex, and there's lots of um, different um, mechanisms involved in this. So I think that um, we, we also don't work as a unit. So also when the person um, who has a mental illness, there's also the family that's affected. And even um, I spoke to someone yesterday, and they were saying that even when someone dies by suicide, there are at least 155 people affected by the death of that person. So that's not only the family and the family unit. It's the whole community. It's people who've worked with this person. It's people who've... Um, um, engage with them, who knows about them, who knows the family. So all of those things, we cannot, we, we cannot make it go away. It's one of the major, mental illness one of the major uh, uh, contributors to global burden of disease. And occupational therapists, we are interested in helping people maintain their roles and occupations. And if people cannot work because they are depressed or suffering from a mental illness, that will have huge ramifications for the economy. So we can't just say this is something that people must manage right. in their home. We need global and collective efforts to make this a public, a public mm. issue. And mm. we can only get that if we promote community mental health and public mental health in all the spaces. And that includes our Muslim spaces as well. Huh. Sure. Fadia, I just have a final question in terms of, you know, is it sort of important to provide non-Muslim professionals that might be dealing with Muslims, you know, in a more culturally appropriate way um, for them to care for Muslim patients to perhaps bridge the gap? Because obviously, you know, there is that difference when it comes to to Muslims and non-Muslims and the way we sort of deal with these issues within culture, tradition, of course, religious spaces as well. Absolutely, absolutely. You must understand when someone is severely mentally ill, by the time they get seen by a um, health professional, their family has done all kinds of other things to get them seen already. 
So with a traditional healer or a chef or a imam, who they have spoken to someone before already. So as mental health professionals, we need to um, train and train our students in cultural competence. Because as a Muslim also, when, when someone is acutely ill, then we say, okay, if they're not, by the call of the sun, then all the duties that are incumbent on us fall away. But when people want to re-engage in their life, salah is important. Where you say good do is important. Having a space in the hospital to make salah is important. And if you don't have those spaces, it causes anxiety. So if you are a health professional from a different uh, religious background, it certainly is important for us to upskill ourselves and understand people's context, because it's the context that people are going back to that matter. And that's, that's the integration that we need to facilitate. Mm. So when people cannot practice their deal in the way that they need to, to help them feel well, then that also adds, so that's also another thing that they have to recover from, besides just the symptoms of the illness. Right. So yes, illness, you can manage with medication, and you can say, oh, the symptoms have gone away, but if you're thinking about personal recovery, it's really about, okay, so what do I want to do? What do I have mm. to reconnect with? What, where must I go that has meaning and purpose for me? Right. And that is um, how Otis helps people make that connection. I think this is a discussion, like we said earlier, it's going to be picked up on the Shaida Kali yes. show um, as yes. well. And it's something that we need to, to, to delve in so much more. I can't believe we've been speaking um, you know, about this um, particular topic for the past 90 minutes and we still you know, didn't even cover most of the important things as well. But we're going to have to leave it there. Fadia Khamildin, Occupational okay. Therapist, shukran very much for your time this morning and all of the very best. Inshallah. Asalaamu Alaikum. And then, of course, um, uh, we want to then uh, get back to our um, psychologist that's uh, also joining us, Clint Maggot. Clint, you know, you heard also, obviously, what Fadia said. How do we break that stigma around depression in our community? I mean, for me, I think it's something that, you know, uh, as a lot, many of my colleagues have said this morning, it's something that, that usually is not spoken about. So a lot of other medical conditions are spoken about more commonly. It's something that's quite public. People are quite comfortable to mention it to each other. Yeah. And it, there is a need for, for a general discussion to happen about this more and more. I think programs like this are important. I completely agree with Dr. Hussain that there's a need for it to go into the mosque. Um, so as a revert myself, I mean, I think, you know, I, you don't hear enough of it being spoken about. And when it's spoken about, there's often, as people have mentioned, it gets related to some kind of spiritual um, weakness or neglect, and that that's the kind of answer. Um, by no means are we saying that that is not important. I think that's, of course, very important, but it's a component of it. As you would treat any other medical illness, you know, you want to approach it from many, uh, from many sides. Um, so, so for me, the one thing is about speaking about it. I just want to touch on something that I think some of the other guests may not have. Yeah. So I think we've spoken a lot about kind of social stigma, um, and there's definitely a need for that to change. But also what is important to note is that usually we take that stigma into ourselves. And so often the person is kind of suffering in silence and not mentioning that they're depressed. But they themselves are kind of judging themselves um, as weak, as not um, being able to deal with this properly. And so often what's very important to note is that the social stigma is often something that we hold in ourselves, and we kind of judge ourselves already. And so a lot of people, when they do come and see me, there's been a long period of time where they've kind of judged themselves as weak in some way, mm. and that also prevents them. And so the changing of the social stigma will also change our people then internally, you know, judge themselves less and are more willing to kind of seek mm -hmm. help.
Doc, also, if you were to look at the support base that one have, you know, and, and people talk, you hear the term safe space, you know, um, and how important is it, you know, for somebody that has been diagnosed with, depres- with depression to find that safe space and being able to, to get into that same, that safe space when they feel, you know, they, they, they're about to encounter an episode of, of anxiety or depression and for that safe space to be available, how important is it to, to, to find that space? It's very important. So we know that depression, if you do not um, act on it, if you do not try and uh, do something about it, it will tend to get worse. It doesn't kind of naturally lift. And so normally, you know, I say to people, don't wait too long to seek help or to kind of put up your hand. Um, There are many, a lot of times people come to me and they say, you know, I would have liked help from my family. I would have liked help from my partner, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes those spaces are not safe. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. But there are always safe spaces available. I often say to people, often the easiest and most familiar one that people are quite comfortable with is to go to their kind of trusted GP, their regular family GP, who is a good first kind of point of call to say, look, this is what I'm experiencing. Can you help me out? It's quite um, difficult and sometimes very, you know, you can have a lot of anxiety about you know, looking for a therapist or a psychiatrist immediately and then calling them, you know, from a number off the Internet. So so often I say to people, maybe a good point of call is to first kind of go to your GP or to a trusted um, member of the family or so on, even if it's not someone that you, you know, immediately would have liked it. But you do need to act. Um, so you need to kind of reach out and find that safety unfortunately, even if it's not within your home. Mm. Doc, let's talk about, you know, the professional help, like you've spoken about, you know, to go and seek that professional help. You know, um, talking about suicidal feelings for argument's sake, it's not something easy. Like you've also mentioned, you need to find a trusted person that you can do so. But let's say for argument's sake, you know, you do go for the help, you do get into a clinic, you know, you get your psychologist, to, your psychiatrist to prescribe some medication for you and so forth. If you, yes. if you were to look at the current treatments that's available for depression, is that the only option, you know, for you to be on a six-month program for argument's sake? Um, we, we, so what we, what's become very important, I think, in the medical profession is to, to operate from evidence. Um, so, you know, it's, you, you want, there's been studies done and people have looked at what works and what doesn't. So for depression, there's multiple uh, treatments that are available, but we do know that one of the best ways is a combination of medication and then psychotherapy and then additional supportive therapies as well, like occupational therapy, etc. It depends very much on the severity of the depression and at what point you can have essentially catch it. Um, you know, say if it's, if it's very severe, an admission might be necessary, um, which can be very scary, but to be honest with you, um, admission units, particularly in private settings, are really comfortable, and even in public settings are quite, are quite um, good. And so it's really when you're kind of getting it. Um, but, you know, at some point, often medication is necessary and then psychotherapy. Sometimes, um, you know, one of those might be avoided, uh, but you really want to try with what the evidence says works. So, right. so I definitely kind of recommend to people, you know, do the treatment that has the best evidence, and it won't be forever. You know, typically um, you do get depressions that are recurrent and long-lasting and chronic, but a lot of people go through a bout of depression, get the treatment, recover, and it never happens to them again. Um, and so people really also need to remember that. It's not a 
forever kind of thing. A lot of yeah. people are kind of nervous about medication, nervous about starting therapy, um, and wondering that, okay, is this my life? And it yeah. doesn't have to be. Doc, I've got about a minute before I need to wrap up quickly. Also, you know, sometimes once you've, once you've gone into a program and, you know, after a few months you feel, um, you know, much better, alhamdulillah, you know, you feel like, ah, you don't need to do this anymore. At which point, you know, do you decide that you are now going to get off this medication that that have been prescribed for you, firstly? And then secondly, is it something that, that do you have to discuss this with your, with your doctor before making these kind of decisions as well? Uh, yes. So, I mean, that's very much a, um, you know, a question for psychiatrists. But what I recommend to my clients is that you definitely need to discuss it with your prescribing doctor. So whether that's a GP or psychiatrist, you need to talk to them about it. So what we, what we encourage in people is that if you've recovered, um, you want to see that that recovery has sustained over a, over a period, so a number of months, we want to look that the person's able to manage stress. So if there's stress in their life has increased, they've been able to manage that and it hasn't led to a relapse. And you also want to look that there's been behavioral and also contextual changes in that person's life before they can consider kind of stopping treatment. Yeah. So you want to know that this person you know, has improved coping mechanisms, they do it regularly, they've got a supportive network around them. So you really want to build up um, the support, both personal support, so the way they take care of themselves and the way other people take care of them as well, yeah. um, before you want to kind of let go of treatment. And then it's always important to people to say that, you know, if it happens again, you know, you restart treatment and usually, um, you know, you kind of recover actually quicker. Right. Um, but let's uh, say it depends very much on the depression. Mm. Doc, we're going to have to leave it there. Shukran so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. It's something that we must definitely delve in a lot more. Um, but all of the very best, and we'll definitely keep your number on speed dial, inshallah. Shukran so much, and you go well. Asalaamu alaikum. So much more that we can talk about this morning, Sabra, and there are so many unanswered questions. There are so many, um, you know, comments that came through on our WhatsApp line, and I'm so so sorry that we're not able to even get into that, um, in, into all of those WhatsApps, inshallah. But we we will see what we can do to see if we can even filter these messages through to Shahida Kali, which is doing a series of this over the next couple of weeks on a Wednesday evening. Sabs, sabs.